1: Hello
2: and welcome to What You Miss This Week? I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss? Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, I sat down with one of the leading Democratic presidential candidates looking to take on President Trump. Senator Elizabeth Warren. We spoke about a wide range of issues, including her signature wealth tax, what would happen to the tariffs on China on day one of a Warren administration, and whether campaigning on bipartisanship and coming together was even a realistic notion in 2019. And that same day that I interviewed her, Senator Warren's campaign ran an ad on Bloomberg TV advocating for a wealth tax. The commercial called out specific billionaires who have criticized the policy, including Leon Cooperman and Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, who is now running for president as a Democrat. Let's start with the big question. You're on Bloomberg TV, our boss is uh, running against you. I've heard that. You've heard that? (laughs) You may have uh, heard that so have we. Mm-hmm. From what I've read in the reports, he's spending perhaps more than all of the other candidates combined on TV ads. I think maybe with the exception of the other billionaire in the race, Tom Steyer. How much is this, for you, evidence of the need for a wealth tax? So
3: it's about the need for a wealth tax, but it's a bigger picture as I see it. Look, I'm a capitalist. I believe in capitalism. Uh, but markets without rules are theft. And part of those rules are that everybody's supposed to pay a fair share on taxes so we can reinvest it in opportunity for all of our kids. And uh, that's what a two cent wealth tax is about for me. So the short version of the wealth tax is this, uh, your first 50 million of accumulated wealth, free and clear, but your 50 millionth and first dollar, you gotta pitch in two cents and two cents for every dollar After that, when you hit a billion, it goes to three cents.
2: Now, you say you're a capitalist. There are numerous people, probably many Bloomberg TV viewers, who suspect otherwise. And there is a parade of billionaires who say, oh, if Elizabeth Warren is elected president, the stock market is going to plunge 25%. I don't put a lot of weight on those predictions. That being said, I'm curious. Under a Warren administration, would the performance of the stock market be something you cared about?
3: Look, what I care about is an economy that works not just for the billionaires and millionaires, but an economy that works for everyone. Look at what's happened in America. Stock market goes up, GDP goes up, uh, unemployment is low. But what's happening to working families across this country? It's been a generation and there's been very little growth in income, but at the same time, families are squeezed for housing, for health care, child care, the cost of sending a kid to school. Those are all through the roof. So families take on more and more debt. They're squeezed harder and harder. And by the way, that's part of why I want to see a wealth tax, because it's what we can do with that wealth tax, how we can invest in an entire generation of young Americans.
2: A technical question about the wealth tax Mm -hmm. that often comes up is that there are several billionaires or people with over $50 million who have their uh, money a big part of it tied up in a liquid private stock. I always see people in Silicon Valley talking about this with the wealth tax. And again, it uh, applies to one of uh, one of your rivals, our owner here. How do you levy a wealth tax of 2% or 6% against someone whose wealth is tied up in a private share?
3: Well, you can, you can levy it. You can give them time on how the collection works uh, over a period of time. But it doesn't mean you get to just say, hey, I don't have to pay anything because it would be uh, a problem right. for me to have to sell off some of my stock Look, it's a problem maybe for everybody else but keep this in mind the ninety nine percent in america they pay seven point two percent of their total wealth in taxes the top one tenth of one percent that is people that would be affected by the wealth tax right. they're paying three point two percent of their total wealth in taxes so my view is asking them to pay two cents more means they're still not carrying a fair share. This is for me about not just numbers but values. That two cents that people are using to continue on these huge fortunes, to continue to grow those fortunes. And what are those fortunes growing at? I don't know, 6%, 8%, 10%? Just means they may not grow as fast. You put that 2% investment, In America, in a whole generation, that's universal child care for every kid. It's universal pre-K for every three-year-old and four-year-old. It's raised the wages of every child care worker in America. It's $800 billion into our public schools, a federal commitment. It's about making technical school, two-year college, four-year college, tuition free. It's $50 billion for historically black colleges and universities. And it's canceling student loan debt for 43 million Americans. That's an investment in an entire generation.
2: Let me ask you a question about your Medicare for All plan. Mm -hmm. When you unveiled how you uh, are going to pay for it, and the media hounded you on that question quite a bit, uh, including uh, new taxes on corporations, an additional tax on billionaire wealth. Under an administration, let's say there were the political capital to pass Medicare for all, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't the willingness to increase or pass those taxes. Would you be willing to do what George W. Bush did in terms of with the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, with the recent tax cuts, and essentially pass the Medicare for all part by adding trillions of dollars to the deficit, if that's what it took?
3: I think the right way to do Medicare for all is asking those at the top to pay. We know that if we do nothing. Going forward, that uh, families across this country are going to pay about eleven trillion dollars over the next uh ten years in out-of-pockets. And that's in premiums and co-pays and deductible and uncovered expenses. I figured out how we could get eleven trillion dollars out of the system by asking the top one percent to pay more, by asking big corporations to pay more, or in some cases to pay anything, since some of them haven't. Uh, and also by cracking down on tax cheats, my personal favorite in that list. And for me, that's what this is about. This is about asking those at the top to pay a fair share in progressive taxation. I have, when I rolled out Medicare for All, a transition plan on this, when I rolled out my two-cent wealth tax, when I've rolled out a housing plan, I want to show how we pay for it. And part of the reason for that is because I think this is ultimately about how we think we ought to be allocating the costs of making this country work and creating opportunities into the future. And for me, I think we ought to ask those at the top to pay some more. That would move our country closer to where other countries are in terms of the total amount of tax revenue that we collect.
2: Let's talk, uh, let's shift gears for a second. Suppose on day one of your administration, the tariffs on China are still in place. What would China have to do to get them lifted?
3: So, you know, the problem we've got right now is the president has no plan.
2: So what's the, you have have a plan (laughs) on I have a plan for everything. uh, So what is the Elizabeth Warren plan? Well,
3: part of it is to say we need an overall strategy on tariffs how are we thinking about it? trade is about tariffs but it's not just about tariffs 21st century trade is about regulation as much as it's about anything else what I want to see is I want to see a coherent plan for anybody who wants access to American markets I want to ease up so that our farmers are not being squeezed like crazy like they are now and by then have already lost markets that are going to be really hard for them to regain. A third part of it that I think is important is we need to be working with our allies. We want to have a trade deal with China that is favorable to the U.S. Then let's not declare a trade war at the same time on Canada, on our other Asian allies, on our European allies. Let's get everybody to work together on this to try to get China to follow a reasonable set of rules on trade.
2: But if China is hoping to wait out the Trump administration for a Warren administration, you wouldn't be willing to lift the tariffs on day one. So the
3: the point, we can't keep doing this as one-offs. That's the whole point. We need a coherent strategy, a strategy that works with our allies, and a strategy that makes clear where our long-term interests lie in trade. I want to see trade occur but i want to see trade occur in a way that is helpful to the american worker that is helpful to the american consumer i don't want to see what donald trump is doing he's destroying markets he's destroying value around the world
2: would you tie chinese human rights abuses potentially to a trade deal
3: i think that again working with our allies we should be putting a lot of pressure on china and part of that pressure should be diplomatic and part of it should be economic we need to use all the tools in all the right. toolbox here.
2: Let's talk about uh, political philosophy for a moment. Some of your competitors, Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, come to mind. They are selling a vision of we can heal America, bipartisanship, we can work with Republicans, etc. Do you think they're naive in 2019 to have that theory of politics?
4: Look,
3: I've worked with Republicans. I've passed a dozen pieces of legislation. Uh, that I've done on a bipartisan basis since Donald Trump has become president. He signed into law my hearing aid bill that's going to reduce the costs of hearing aids. There are places where, of course, we should work with Republicans. But the fundamental question is, what do you think is broken in America? And for me, what's broken in America is we've got a country that is working great for those at the top, an economy that's working great for those at the top, and a democracy that is working great for those at the top, it's just not working for much of anyone else. And that's why I'm so concerned about Michael Bloomberg jumping into this race, dropping $37 million in one week on ad buys. I don't believe that elections ought to be for sale. And I don't think as a Democratic party, that we should say that the only way you're going to get elected, the only way you're going to be our nominee, is either if you are a billionaire or if you're sucking up to billionaires. Because the problem we've got, if that's the case, is buckle your seatbelts, because that means the government is just going to work better and better for billionaires. We've got this chance in 2020 where the door has opened this much where we could make the kind of change that makes our economy and our democracy work for everyone. I want to see us take that chance.
2: We also spoke with Christopher Ailman, the chief investment officer of CalSTRS, the world's largest educator-only pension fund with more than 949,000 members and beneficiaries. Chris oversees an investment portfolio valued at about $246 billion and has been pushing for corporate governance reforms at tech companies that Kelsters has invested in. We started by asking him about his issue with dual-class stock structures.
5: Well, that's what we really think has to change, is that dual-class structure. The inspiration of a founder and what they bring to a company is huge, but at some point, a company grows to be so mature, it needs to be run by professionals. And that's different, a different spirit and a different structure than what some of these entrepreneurs are used to. And that's when they really do need to step away, Mm -hmm. bring in more management, a more complex structure. And that's when we think they need to end up backing away from that dual class structure. We've seen over time
6: that that does not work. Say past about seven years, it really should be sunsetted. But how do you then, how do you sort of force that change, particularly when you have, take a company like Facebook, which is still generating pretty good returns for investors. Uh, So, you know, you can look at them and say, well, you know, it works for us. How do you put that pressure on a company like that to say this is better for you to have a structure that's a little bit more equitable for your rank and file investors?
5: We never go away. That's how we put Mm -hmm. pressure on a continual Think about literally like a glacier, just a constant grind, a constant push. Mm -hmm. When the stock's doing well, then we don't get other people's attention. And you're right. The the general view is we won't listen to you. The stock's done well. We're happy. Mm -hmm. But the minute the stock does poorly, then it's a recognition of, wait, we've got to look at some of the structural flaws in this company. Then we can get people's attention. And the fact that we've been there all the time with this message that a better governance structure, more independent directors holding management accountable is a better way to operate a company.
4: In other words, you nag a lot, which I get, and because you're consistently there, you're persistently there, it makes sense. What about bringing on other shareholders with you? How easy is it to convince the other investors to get on board with this idea?
5: I would tell you that the vast majority of long-term investors absolutely agree with us, whether it's here in Mizuno in Japan, Uh, my friends in in the Nordic region with the Dutch funds and the Norwegian fund Which frankly have larger exposure in the US than even we do. Mm. They absolutely agree with us on this and That's when you want to sometimes you want to sing a solo and sometimes you want to sing as a chorus and Frankly this is a better issue where particularly it's in our backyard in California We'll be loud and vocal, but we'll bring in teams
4: by the way your asset allocation right now 50% to global equity How much of of that is tech global tech?
5: Global tech is going to be right on the index waiting. Okay. As we're mostly passive, even outside the USA. So, tech has been huge and is the running sector. So, it's the largest sector by far in our portfolio.
2: Chris, we were just talking before the close another day of rest of the world outperformance. Um, there, this is becoming a theme or a lot of people are making this call for 2020. Do you buy that possibility because it's been so long? I feel like people are making this call forever.
5: I heard it in 2018, and as Kim Lu said yeah. from the Carnegie Foundation, a lot of funds put that slight tilt on a while ago right. and weren't rewarded in 2019. 2020 looks tough. I mean, look at what's going on in France today. That was the growing economy of Europe. And the unrest there shows you that it's not out of the woods. Germany is not out of the woods. Uh, You still obviously have debt problems in Italy and the south of the EU. So it's tough to be really bullish on the rest of the world outside the U.S. Um, I would say when I look at 2020, the USA is probably going to have a 2, 2.5% GDP, Mm. where Europe may actually be lower. And at some point, it'll be a good time to overweight Europe. But right now, we're still actually balanced Mm. right between the USA, almost 50-50.
6: Uh, Chris, uh, well, first of all, thanks for joining the fraternal brotherhood of uh, lapel pins here. Uh, Looking good. (laughs) We're bringing Um, it out. (laughs) What what are your thoughts, in all seriousness, what are your thoughts on on the energy sector uh, in general here? Well, I'm going to take a longer-term view Mm -hmm. in the energy
5: sector, which is going to bring in climate change. Mm -hmm. And we're actually right now at our board having a discussion about what that low-carbon economy looks like five years from now, and it certainly has to be in place ten years from now. What OPEC is thinking I really think they're thinking out nine months 18 months they're not if you talk to them at the executive level they really are starting to look 10 years and five years out and realize they've got to diversify their economy they can't just depend on crude oil
2: chris before we go i want to get your take on private company evaluations because one of the things that we've seen this year is a number of very hyped private growth tech companies uh come to market and just not perform very well once they're public. And a lot of critics of traditional private equity saying that a lot of this is just sort of high beta, but high leverage, but not mark to market. So it pretends to be low volatility and people are overpaying for that. What is your view of a private sector valuation?
5: Well, as we close, I would say EBITDA multiples are at through the roof. I am asking our PE managers, private equity managers to be slow and patient but that's tough for them to do. Is that a bubble? Um, There's a lot of capital. I I would hesitate to use the word bubble, because I don't think it's going to crash. There's going to be a lot of capital. As soon as valuations come down a little bit, valuations will come in.
4: Do you see a bubble anywhere across any asset class? Hmm.
5: Traditional bubbles are hard to define and and examine in advance. They're easy to spot afterwards. So right now, (laughs) prices are high. As we said, we're melting up to, to ridiculously high levels, but I think we can still melt up a little bit higher.
4: Okay, ridiculously high levels is as far as we're going to get. Chris Aylman <laughs> to say there might be a bubble. Chris, um, Abigail was talking earlier about how the technicals seem to line up for small caps outperforming large caps. We've talked a lot about value versus growth. Where do you see rotation? Where do you see the rotation right now? There's been a lot of head fakes.
5: Yeah, I would I would look at Abigail's chart, and I think that channel is going to continue to hold where. While small cap could have a rally here in December and outperform for a brief period, Mm -hmm. they're still going to continue to underperform in this economy. It is really, it benefits the largest companies and technology and the large consumer products that go across the world. And they're going to continue to, as, as much as value and small cap should come back, it's going to be a large cap growth story. Again, very slow, but large cap growth.
2: You know what's crazy is that I have not heard many people talk about the jobs report tomorrow. And you know, it's a pretty big deal. But for some reason, between everything else that's going on, it feels like it hasn't gotten as much attention as it
6: deserves. So Chris, look a few more days out past that to the Fed meeting. I mean, does this mean basically we have a Fed that does nothing for the next few months?
5: The Fed's gonna be data dependent. That Mm -hmm. would be my big headline. Wow, data dependent Fed. But I don't think they're gonna do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't think they should. Um, I think they've tightened enough. And they sit still. The bond market, you know, that 60-40 portfolio that Taylor showed has been been outperforming because of the bonds. Mm -hmm. It's been a tremendous year for bonds that nobody really anticipated. It shouldn't continue to rally a heck of a lot more. We're getting back down to historic lows.
4: What's your allocation of fixed income right now?
5: It is only about, Right now, it's only about 15%. It's actually going down to 13%. So when you think about that 60-40 portfolio, we have other assets that replicate bonds. So we're really about an 80-20 portfolio. And as Kim mentioned, she's pretty much about a 95% growth-oriented portfolio. Mm -hmm. So generally, people are long growth and not willing to bet on rates. I mean, outside the USA, the rates are negative around the rest of the world. There's no point to be in bonds.
0: You know success when you see it.
2: Then we spoke with David Wu, head of global rates and currencies research at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. We started by asking him about some of his recent research, economy on the mend in 2020, and whether he was fully on board with
7: the bullish theme. I'm, 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 I'm hugely bullish. I haven't been this <laughs> bullish for, I think, at least a year. And wow. I think the reason is because I don't tell you, the big story of 2019 was about this massive escalation of political and policy uncertainties that reached unprecedented highs, that weighed down confidence, that led to a recoupling of the US coming to the global slowdown party. My view is that 2020 is going to be about the dissipation of these uncertainties. If I'm right, I've got to be right about the next three weeks. In my view, the next three weeks are going to be absolutely, absolutely crucial.
4: Why the next three weeks? Because of the tariffs on December 15th?
7: I'm going to make three bold predictions. Okay, Okay, do for it. the next three weeks. I think you're going to get a meaningful, significant U.S.-China trade deal in the next 10 days. I think you're going to get a decisive victory for the conservatives and Boris Johnson in the election next week that will allow them to deliver Brexit once for all. I also think there's a very good chance that Pelosi will have no choice but to ratify USMCA before the end of the year. If you get all these three things, even just two out of these three things, I think that will represent a tremendous lifting of this uncertainty that will allow the world to go back to investing and rebuilding inventory.
6: Are you not concerned, though, that the market's already front-run all three of those things?
7: I don't think so. Because if you think about this, right, I can tell you, like, in all the equity clients I've been talking to, like, the last... Week or so. People say, well, you know, like David, we've been selling individual stocks because we don't see any value in individual stocks. But because of the momentum in the equity market rally, we've been buying indices. So, yes, you're right. I think some of the uncertainties come down, and therefore general risk premiums gone down. But there's no doubt. Nobody's positioned for a global recovery. If that were the case, there's no way 10 year Treasury is still trading basically south of 1.8%. The market's still pricing cuts for next year. Mm. The Fed has never cut more than 75 basis points. At a stretch, which they did, without right. the U.S. coming actually going into a recession, mm. the market is definitely still pricing some recession. This is why also cyclical stocks, while they've done well recently, they haven't done any better mm. than the broader indices. That's why Aussie dollar is still trading at 70 cents below. So there's no doubt. I think growth pessimism is still quite prevailing, and you know, and I think you know people at this point because there's been so many, I don't know, you know you know, false, you know, hope in the last basically couple of years, I think people don't want to pull the trigger until they've seen these deals actually done.
2: Let's talk about one of those deals, and that's the potential trade deal, because there are just a lot of people who will be very skeptical and eager to take the other side of that bet, that they're imminently about to get towards a meaningful phase one agreement. Why do you feel like they're about to get one?
7: I think first of all, you know what? I was in China because a lot of people say, well, you know, listen, you know, it's not a question Trump doesn't want to deal, that the Chinese don't want to deal, especially we're so close to the US elections. Mm-hmm. Right? That has been a very powerful argument the why has the even deal's said not that. gonna happen exactly, right? No, I was in China two weeks ago. You know what I heard? And the most amazing, thing, I met some members of Chinese leadership. I was told the three big consensus in Chinese in Chinese leadership in Beijing right now. Number one, they feel that Biden might struggle with the scandal involving his son mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Second consensus is that Warren and Sanders are going to be far tougher on trade than Trump. Third consensus in Beijing is is what was put to me by a former basically vice minister who said, if we get a Democrat in the White House, he or she might actually institutionalize the policy that began under Trump. The conclusion in Beijing, which caused me to fall off my chair when I heard that, was actually the best chance China has to do in a trade deal with the US might just be mm-hmm. Donald J. Trump. And I think that is a very very important realization. I'll tell you from Trump's standpoint, which was basically a poll only a few weeks ago. What did it show? It shows basically a Washington Post a show that 60 percent Americans think a recession is either likely or very likely next year. And guess what? 45 percent of the respondents, this basically poll, blamed this coming recession on Trump's trade war with China. You know what? In fact, not only despite the fact Trump's overall approval rating is at 45%, his approval rating when it comes to handling a trade negotiation with China is only at 35%. In other words, even among people who call themselves Trump supporters, at least 25% of them think trade war is a bad idea. In other words, in many ways, if you look at this, I think the political we are... But stuck.
6: we're not talking about the resolution of the trade war. We're talking about phase one of what yes. ostensibly is a three-phase deal. You think phase one is going to be big enough on psychologically... To, to deal
7: with that, you do. Absolutely. It. Listen, yeah. the honest truth is, you know, we sit here, we are pontificating. The honest truth is that 90% of what we know about the state of negotiation right. is still from the press conference on October 11th. If you remember with the White House, with Liu Heo, Trump, mm-hmm. Lighthizer. You know, Lighthizer, only two sentences came out of Lighthizer's mouth. When mm-hmm. I heard them, I almost fell off my chair. And I'll tell you what they were. Right. He said, U.S. China have agreed on the need for a dispute resolution mechanism. Uh. And then the second sentence is, we are almost there. You know what? That was huge because you know what? Because this man, Lighthizer, who not only commends respect among Republicans, but also Democrats alike. Mm-hmm. He's been saying for the last two years, a, a trade deal with China would not be worth a piece of paper written on unless it comes with an enforcement mechanism. Right. So when the toughest guy in the room tells you that over the toughest part of negotiation, they're almost there you don't think that's pretty big yeah
4: so that's what you pay attention to to the china hawks comments rather than the president who might be kind of swaying depending on what would work best with his base in your note you say that the second half of 2012 will provide a template a roadmap for how things will unfold in 2020 when it comes to uh how asset prices will react and the lesson there the takeaway there is that the market can recover faster than economic data so talk us through what that means in say fx what would be what would you look for to happen in FX?
7: Sure. All right, that's a great question. I think, first of all, let's remember what happened in 2012. The first half of 2012 was all about the Eurozone crisis having spread from Greece all the way to Italy. It was about to go France mm-hmm. until, guess what? You know, whatever drugies, takes. famous, whatever it takes speech. And guess what? Overnight, you know, the Eurozone crisis went away, and then the global economy mounted a synchronized recovery. And you know why? What's the biggest lesson for us now is that back then, the pent-up demand in the system had been accumulating for months and months and months. And when they got released, all of a sudden, the world economy just sank. You know, let me put it this way. It's like a spring that was so compressed. When you let it go, it bounced. I'm just telling you, right now, it's the same thing every company that I've seen in the last six months, S&P 500 company, I've seen probably about 100 of them. Everybody's telling me, you know what, David? Business is great. Except, if you want to know, we're really, really, really worried about the US China trade war. Because they're saying this is like a huge cloud in the sky casting this massive shadow as a result because we're not in the business of deciphering political risk. We're all sitting on our hands doing nothing. We're pulling back, cutbacks, and hiring. So I think if that uncertainty gets removed, I think companies are going to go back to restocking inventory. You're going to see people going back, undertaking capex. I think it's going to be very... I even think China might even base these policy. Now, you're right. I think the way I look at this is very simple. If we go back to a deflationary world, the world's doing better, that's not going to be so kind for the U.S. dollar. Hmm. Only because, you know what? I'm nothing against. I think the U.S. is doing great, except that, you know, we get a trade deal. It's going to be even better for the rest of the world than for the U.S.
2: So from a sort of FX pair standpoint, and you list it as one of your top trades, Aussie versus yen is kind of just the ultimate shift away from safety to cyclical.
7: Exactly. Especially given the fact, why do you think the Chinese have been so reluctant to ease policy more aggressively? Because I really do believe that they think that they have very limited dry powder. Mm-hmm. Right now, with all the uncertainty around trade war, if they were to ease now, it would be a complete waste of ammunition. Once you have, basically, deal, they ease, and I think Aussie dollar is going to do very well, especially given that you know, commodity prices definitely got plenty of room to reprice higher. So uh, go back to the reflation comment
6: that mm. you just made. I mean, help me believe in the reflation trade, because, uh, I mean, the last 10
7: years would sort of argue mm-hmm. against it. Yeah. Listen, the fact is, you know, you know it's, to me, the most interesting about this economy right now is that the wages of the 10 percent lowest Mm -hmm. income earners in this country is currently growing at the fastest rate in 10 years that must tell you something Mm -hmm. about how tight the labor market is okay we know that basically oil has been equal probably core inflation is going to go back to two percent by probably the first quarter of next year and by the way the biggest problem with this whole i mean we all understand it's a problem the greatest but, you know, I'll tell you the greatest support for inflation trades next year mm-hmm. is the fact the Fed just finished cutting rates. Mm-hmm. It will take them six months before they're going to think about hiking rates, by which time you're going to be talking about five months before the election, the economy will have to be growing at 10% for them to actually even talk about hiking rates next year. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you get the strong economy and the Fed being held back by the election, that's going to be highly reflationary. And this is why I like owning U.S. inflation break I think basically like tips are going to outperform next year because the Fed might actually end up being behind the curve.
4: Hmm. It might be in a position where it needs to think about raising rates.
7: Well, but they won't be able to. Right.
4: right. So talk a little bit about how this dovetails with the election. Come November 2020, hmm. everything is you know, at stake. What, what needs to happen before then? And, yeah. and how do you game sure. out what's going to happen in November?
7: You know, Scarlett, I think, I think that's the most crucial question. But I would argue the outcome of the U.S.-China trade war and the outcome of the U.S. election next year will have a 90% correlation. Mm. Because if Trump managed to close this trade deal with China, I think the economy is going to do very well. And he's clearly going to be the man to beat. If, however, there is no trade deal with China, the stock market is going to go down, the economy is going to suffer, the North Koreans threaten to basically essentially be letting basically missiles fly. I'll tell you, then we go into recession, and then you might actually get country opting for a left-wing populist. I think from that point, this is why the next three weeks, I would argue the next three weeks is going to be so important because the impact will be felt for probably many years to come. Mm.
2: One thing we haven't had you expand on is USMCA, you think Pelosi is going to have to ratify it. Why is she going to have to, and what is the trade? What's the most sensitive right. yeah. bet one can make
7: on Excellent that ratification? question. I'll tell you this. The Democrats have been telling us for the last two months that they can walk chew gum and impeach at the same time, okay? You don't believe it? <gasps> no, show us the good. If you, I mean, listen, passing USMCA it will be a great piece of evidence that they can chew gum and walk at the same time. Moreover, Pelosi said that she's, they're gonna press ahead with getting a vote on the article's impeachment. Now, she's gonna have, she's gonna be thinking about how she's gonna persuade the 31 House Democrats sitting in swing districts who could potentially, who might think that, you know what, voting for this thing may not do them any good in the election next year. Guess what? The best way to bribe them, I would argue, is USMCA. Because USMCA is a bipartisan piece of legislation, is one that I think is good, it's going to be good for America. Democrats already got what they wanted, okay, from the Mexicans, even from the Canadians. They could basically make the case, we did this because it's good for the country, and therefore impeachment is not personal. David, we're running out of time. What's your best carry trade idea? I, I like the Mexican Yeah. Because exactly for that reason, why do you think the Mexican economy is in the recession right now? Because the uncertainty around USMCA, direct foreign investment into Mexico this year has collapsed. This is why AMLO is so eager to bank, to basically bend forward, backward, in order to make this work. And this is why I think this is going to get done.
2: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week.